Hey everybody, Doug here. Uh, before we get going on this week's episode on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I wanted to just let you guys know that uh, we are mindful of the ongoing SAG after a strike, and you know I, I am not a member of those unions, but sometimes our guests are. Um, this particular show was recorded before the SAG after strike started, so just want to let you know that up top. Um, the other thing is we did go on a tangent in this episode talking a little bit about uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, and since we recorded it, Paul Rubens passed away, and I would be remiss if we did not talk about, one, that what a huge loss that was, and also the fact that he was the original voice of Roger Rabbit in some very early 1983 test footage when they were first starting to work out how they were going to do this movie. So anyway, just wanted to say RIP to that legend, and I uh, hope you enjoy this episode, because it's a whole lot of fun. All right. Hello, and welcome to Nostalgia Arcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we'll look back on the movies, TV, games, people, and phenomena that we still love talking about all these years later, and ask ourselves why these bits of pop culture still enchant us today. This week, we'll be revisiting... Roger Rabbit is a film noir story about a marginalized group of people of color struggling with a two-tier justice system. And by people of color, I mean people of technicolor, because they are cartoons that are clearly uh, in great peril from the legal system of the late 40s. So it is, uh, it's a really phenomenal movie from on every level, just the technical achievement of it is is just wild alone. But it's a great plot, and it's a very funny movie, and it's extremely well acted. So I'm very excited to be revisiting this. This is a top five movie for me, just getting ahead of this. I, yeah, I love this one. Um, and you're hearing the voice of our guest. He is a, a returning guest from our episode on Fallen Angels, which is another noir piece. If you haven't uh, listened to that, check that out. And he can, of course, be seen on NBC's The Amber Ruffin Show and is a performer with Freestyle Love Supreme. That's S-O-U-P, Supreme. Uh, please welcome back to the show, Tarek Davis. Uh, happy to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm so glad you agreed to talk about this because I, I feel like nobody I know knows more about noir than you do. And this is uh, this is a very special noir movie because it's, it's rare that you find like a noir parody that also works as a noir movie itself. Almost anything that's like that, like The Princess Bride, right? It's it's a parody of a fairy tale and a fairy tale at the same time. Yeah. Um, okay, so that, you just mentioned one of my top five. Um, <laughs> Roger Rabbit is definitely, would, I, it's like, I don't know, is it, it's maybe in my top ten. Um, it was a huge, huge film for me when it came out. Like, it may have... Now that I'm thinking about it, it may have kickstarted my. It's between that and Dick Tracy that kickstarted my kind of love of noir. Because um, I didn't know what it was parodying. You know, as a kid, I was like, what? You know, the hats, the lingo. Um, I was like, what? You know, 
it's it was like a joke that I knew was a joke, but I didn't I wasn't in on it fully. And you know, luckily I had you know parents who encouraged me and were big cinephiles themselves, and so you know, uh, before Turner Classic Movies, I think it was a the older version of AMC, and watching old films on AMC and like. Oh, Humphrey Bogart. I know that guy. Oh, yeah, they're doing that. And, like, you know, and, like, I, I was able to connect a lot of the tissue because I was also a Looney Tunes fans, and the Looney Tunes were always parroting, like, you know, Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart and, and those, and, you know, Jimmy Cagney and those characters. So, you know, yeah, Looney Tunes was kind of the culmination of that. I was like, oh, this is all... I get it now. Oh, man, I want to see that movie again. And, you know, and it didn't help that, you know, as... When did this movie come out? 88? 88. Yeah, this is the 35th anniversary this year. So it came out in 88, so I was nine years old. And it's like right before puberty. (laughs) You know, Jessica Rabbit. I had the same thought. Yes, I was eight. We all did. I mean, look, I'm just going to come out. I'm not going to act like, you know, uh, you know, I was a child and I was just like, that gives me feelings. And I need to uh, watch this movie again. And um, and also just the amazing, like, wizardry of live action and animation in the same space. And it was just like, yeah, I love that movie. I love that movie a lot. I love Christopher Lloyd. I love Bob, the great, late great Bob Hoskins. It's fantastic in it. Uh, Charles Fleischer, Roger Rabbit, of course, is amazing. Kathleen Turner, the greatest voice in the cinema. Uh, Joanna Cassidy, an amazing actress. Like, it's such a, as you said, well-acted, committed film. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those perfect films. Yeah, there's so well. There's one thing about it that's not perfect. We'll talk about when we get to this scene that is very weird because of a, a scene they deleted. So it's it's you will get you know what I'm talking about. It's a very weird transition. But yeah, I, I generally consider this to be a perfect movie. It's an A plus. I saw this in the theaters twice, which our family we generally didn't do. You know, unless it was something pretty major. So like to make no, we have to see this again. We have to see Roger Rabbit again. When I was, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but when I was a kid, the first kind of thing I wanted to be when I grew up, or one of the first, was an animator. I wanted to draw cartoons. And so, like, so, like, eight-year-old me seeing this, this is animation at a technical level, 2D animation that, like, I don't think has ever been done before or since. Like, you talk about, you mentioned these, like, uh, the combination of animation and live action. That had been done before. Right, like you know, Mary Poppins famously, you know, has this sequence, yeah. right? But never. Uh, 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 Gene Kelly and Jerry from Tom and Jerry doing the, the dance together. Like, yeah, I mean, this goes all the way back to like, uh, there's that moment in Fantasia where Mickey comes up and shakes the conductor's hand. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not, not to reference this terrible movie, but they did do it in Song of the South, which is around the same yes, era. They did. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. then. And in fact, some of those characters do appear in this movie in the background, which makes sense for 47. But um, but setting aside that, so like it had been done on a technical level, but never like this, because this has to be like you have to believe the tunes are real and occupy the same 3D space as all the humans and objects. And 
this is from a time, you know, now we're so used to that in like, you know, in movies where like, oh yeah, you know, you probably go to acting school now and they teach you, here's how to act against a green screen and talk to a tennis ball. But like, that didn't exist when they did this. Like Bob Hoskins, his performance, you know, opposite nothing in this movie is just fucking acting wizardry. I mean, it's, yeah, it's acting against nothing, doing an accent that's not your own, in a time period that's not your own. Like, it's, he was such an immensely talented actor. And I, I, I think the word underrated gets used a lot. And I think that, you know, and I don't know, people have certainly appreciated who, you know, Bob Hoskins had talent, but there are some actors who I'm like, I just feel like they deserve more flowers, um, especially since he's not here anymore. And so, yeah, I'm definitely team Bob Hoskins. Like, the guy could act against a paper bag and make you cry and, like, laugh. He was, yeah, he was an immensely talented actor. And, um, yeah, it's no small task. And so that teamwork between his craft as as a thespian and the animators and the you know the FX team who are like shadowing things and like when what when uh, my favorite scene is when Roger he makes Roger drink uh, it's one of my favorite scenes and like the water like just the, the the glass like holding the glass and like turning it and like I'm still I watch that scene like how did they do this. Like, I don't quite understand. And they sweat the details, too, because, like, right. so there's that scene where they're handcuffed together for a while, and, yeah. like, they can't just have the other end of the the handcuff just hang limply, right? It has to be attached to something that's moving around, and then the animators create Roger around it, but every little thing in the environment has to react to him or the other tunes as if they're there. And yeah. there, there's not, like, one like miss frame that's like you know oh there's a continuity error there's there's a spot where you can see how they kind of flubbed the illusion like no they they perfectly maintain that illusion throughout uh there's another you mentioned the animators i want to call out uh one animator in particular who is andreas deja who he is roger's supervising animator he's actually the supervising animator on a number of characters uh including baby herman and then some of the legacy characters like Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny and and, and uh, the other ones that appear, Donald Daffy as well. Uh, Andreas Deja is responsible, or Deja is responsible for so many of the, the characters that you love from other Disney movies. So uh, Jafar from Aladdin, Scar from The Lion King, Hercules, like a, a million of them. And uh, I just wanted to spotlight that work because the detail on here is incredible. Um, but let me skip ahead to the, the opening of the movie, which is this something's cooking uh, short that this they spent nine million dollars to make. Um, I love this thing. I we were we were talking a little bit uh, off air about kind of why this is amazing. But the, again, we were just saying the level of detail here is makes you believe that this is being filmed rather than drawn. Yeah, and I feel like it's done for a multitude of reasons. Like one one was I remember what was incredible to me about watching it was like you know I had. You know, there's no context for the Roger Rabbit character. Like, you kind of understand, especially for me as a kid, I understand that, like, all right, he's like Bugs Bunny. Uh, but, you know, you when you sit down in that theater and this cartoon shows, 
I'm just in the cartoon world. I'm like, all right, who is this character? What's going on? And the, you know, you are brought into this deep world through this, like, really impressive, magnificent animation. Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. Please, don't worry. Whatever you say, yes, ma'am, aye, aye, sir, okie dokie. Why, I'll take care of him like he was my own brother. Or my own sister. Ow! Or my brother's sister. Or my second cousin, who is twice a couple cookie. Or my ninth cousin, who is nine times removed from his place outside. Or like my fifteenth And the transition is so seamless, too, between when this refrigerator falls on its head and it's animated and they pan out and it's a three-dimensional object yes. uh, that, that now the cartoon Roger is sort of poking through. Uh, you know, you, you just your brain can't even tell where the transition happens. It's uh, just a brilliant little moment. Yeah, I, you know, I was, I was nine years old. I was not an actor at that point, but, like, I would... That Roger Rabbit would be a movie I would love to be on the set for. Just to see the the props and to see like you know the costumes and the like. It's such a yeah. I I, I love that. I mean you know it's no surprise. I love that time period, uh, the aesthetic of that time period, and I love this like how they the movie Roger Rabbit throttles this line between being honest and on uh, to the time period that it's in 1947, but also it's almost like the real world is also cartoony and a little bit more exaggerated, but also real. And like those two worlds, like you said, from that moment, that fridge lands on them and they pull out. It's like, wait a minute. What, what is animated? What is, what is cake? You know what I mean? I love it. I can, it's a, it's one of my, uh, yeah, I fucking, I think, is it for mistletoe? I'm going to mess the word up. But the oh, word that ver- verisimilitude. Yeah, verisimilitude, the word that they created on the 1978 Superman set to, that was just kind of like a made up, I think it's a made up word, um, but the meaning of which is just like, we want you to believe this man can fly, right? So we want you to lose any kind of skepticism or cynicism 
when you sit into the theater and sit in the theater and watch this film and like I would say the same with Two Frame Roger Rabbit. Like I that not that nine million dollar opening erased any cynicism in my mind that like these two worlds couldn't coexist. Yeah, and we're we're in it immediately because we meet Eddie Valiant on the set of Something's Cooking. Can we just say oh, yeah. what an amazing name Eddie Valiant is? Yeah, it's a great private eye name for sure. It's a great private eye name. And there's two of them. It's, you know, Eddie and Teddy Valiant, his brother. Valiant and Valiant. Yeah, I would like to see a prequel with the two Valiant brothers before, sadly, you know? Yeah, no, totally. There, there, there are definitely opportunities for other stories in this world. It's, you know, I th- this is the kind of movie that, like, it definitely leaves you wanting more. And not in a bad way. You know, like, it's just, it's kind of perfect. So, yeah, he goes to, to Maroon, uh, R.K. Maroon, the, the head of the studio, to get his assignment that he's been summoned for, which is to go and take pictures of Roger's wife, Jessica, who may or may not be cheating on him with Marvin Acme, the gag king. Yeah. How much do you know about show business, Mr. Valiant? Only there's no business like it. No business I know. Yeah, and there's no business more expensive. I'm 25 grand over budget on the latest baby Herman cop, too. You saw the rabbit blowing his lines. He can't keep his mind in his work. You know why? One too many refrigerators dropped on his head. Ah, he's a tune. You can drop anything you want on his head. He'll shake it off. He'll break his heart. Goes to pieces just like you or me. Read that. Seeing cooing over calamari with not so new sugar daddy was Jessica Rabbit, wife of maroon cartoon star Roger. What's this got to do with me? You're the private detective. You figure it out. Look, I don't have time for this. Look, Valiant, his wife's poisoned, but he thinks she's Betty Crocker. I want you to follow her. Get me a couple of nice, juicy pictures I can wise the rabbit up with. Forget it. I don't work Toontown. What's wrong with Toontown? Every Joe loves Toontown. You get Joe to do the job, because I ain't going. Whoa, fella. You don't want to go to Toontown, you don't have to go to Toontown. Nobody said you had to go to Toontown anyway. Have a seat, Valiant. The rabbit's wife sings at a joint called the Income Paint Toon Review. Strictly humans only, okay? So what do you think, Valiant? Well? The job's gonna cost you a hundred bucks, plus expenses. A hundred bucks? That's ridiculous. So's the job. All right, all right, you got your hundred bucks. And uh, we meet, like, I-, I love this, like, just, you know, he gets his assignment, you know, he, he makes it clear he doesn't like working for tunes. We know, we find out he's a drinker. <laughs> and then yeah. he walks off through the studio, and it's just this incredible, like, Oh, you thought it was neat when you saw, like, Roger and baby Herman kind of storm off the set? Well, now here's a whole studio full of people that are, you know, animated characters. Yeah. Um, And it it gave me a different context for all those animated characters. Like, seeing them kind of as, like, you know, in the studio system. You know, (laughs) working actors, like, making a living, you know, this is what they do. I forget the name. What was a uh, uh, Brendan Fraser, Steve Martin, a Looney Tunes film that came back? Out? Uh, back in action. Back in action. Like I would say, for back in action in Space Jam, there's this movie laid the groundwork for me seeing like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Mickey Mouse. All the like, oh, they are. This is their job. Like they're entertaining me, and I, I get caught up in it. But at the end of the day, they go home and have separate lives and uh yeah i think roger rabbit kind of laid the cement for that yeah uh, they're they're working stiffs uh, the muppets are kind of the same thing right they're yeah you know 
Um, they're they're entertainers. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, they're they're kind of only entertainers. They're not, and occasionally they work like in the service industry. But they're not like the tunes are not fully integrated into society. Like Toontown is a little bit of a ghetto for them. Um, and that's and that stuff is all like in the like the subtext of the movie, which I love. Like it's entertaining and it's light and fluffy. But like a true noir story, like this stuff is lurking kind of, you know, under the surface. Well, it's, I, I'd be very curious to know what the conversations were uh, in pre-production of like, because like you said, we're going from an opening of a cartoon, right? With this bunny rabbit character chasing a baby that's innocent and cute. Then the baby has like a, you know, a deep Brooklyn accent, right? And smokes a stogie. And it's just like, wait a minute, all right, this is new. Um, and then we're introduced to Eddie Valiant, and he's on assignment. You know, you know, you, like a private eye doesn't do glamorous work. You know, they, he's getting paid to basically catch, like, and so, you know, if you're a child, and this was a family, this was advertised as a family movie, they're bringing in kids. There had to be a conversation of like, how do we thread the needle of talking about infidelity? Murder. That's in the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, murder. Like, there is so many. And like, Looney Tunes was all, like, they never, it was always for adults, um, is my assumption. Uh, you know, it was just like, they were. You know, they were lobbing some really smart, subversive stuff that would go over a kid's head and hit an adult, but the kid would see, like, you know, the, the shotgun to the face and the, and the duck season, rabbit season, stuff like that. But so, like, you know, the kids aren't coming in fully naive, but it's still quite the balancing act. And yeah, they are talking about, like, the tunes are kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, they are the people of color, the blacks of that era, <laughs> which is funny because now they're no blacks, the tunes. But, you know, it's it's an interesting commentary that they're making that the tunes are disempowered in the in the Hollywood system for as indestructible and entertaining as they are and creative. They are disempowered. And so, um, you know, the adult in me wants, like, the film to go further in that, but it's definitely, like, an admirable and very interesting thing that they are um, subversively, not so subversively, putting it on the screen. And credit on that really, I think, goes to Robert Zemeckis. I don't know, I've never read the, the book that it's based on called Who Censored Roger Rabbit?, I know it's very it's very different. Just for a few things, one Judge Doom is not a character in it. They invented him from the, for the movie, uh, and the characters are not animated cartoons; they're comic strip cartoons, which is even weirder. But yeah, uh, you know, this was released not under Disney; they released it under their Touchstone label because yeah. of the adult content that's in here. And but I, the reason I wanted to credit Zemeckis is there was pressure from Michael Eisner and the studio people to, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're going to have, uh, you know, Mickey and Bugs on the screen together. We want to have everybody have a good time, right? And Zemeckis had the, like, clout after Back to the Future to just kind of go, 
this is my vision. This is how it's got to be for this movie to work. And it was the yeah. second highest grossing movie of 1988. So he was right. Yeah, he he was right. And yeah, and the addition to the Judge Doom character is a stroke of genius because that's one of the greatest cinematic villains in all of like moviedom. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get there. But uh, so after Eddie. Um, he leaves, so he leaves the studios. I believe this is, he first goes to the bar across the street where his sort of girlfriend, Dolores, works. That's, um, they, they kind of established at least they used to be a pair, but he's now in hock to her. Like he's doing this snoop job, as he calls it, because he's he owes her money. Uh, and this is where we start getting in some of like the world building about, you know, who the tunes are and who Eddie is and his, you know, reluct- his uh, reluctance to work with or around them. R.K. Maroon. As in maroon cartoons? Maroon cartoons? <laughs> hey! So who's your client, Mr. Detective to the stars? <laughs> Chilly Willy? Or screwy squirrel? <laughs> what do you want to drink? I'll take a beer, though. So what happened, huh? Somebody kidnapped Dinky Doodle? Cut it out, Angelo. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know. You're working for little Bo Peep. She's lost a sheep, and you're gonna help her find him. <laughs> hey? <laughs> Get this straight, Lean Ball. I don't work for Jones. So, what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? Dropped the piano on his head. And then he's off to the, the Ink and Paint Club, which is, I think, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Oh, uh, why is that one of your favorite scenes? Uh, it's just so, like, dynamic. You know, you've got, you know, the he shows up and, you, and it's this, you know, what clearly used to be a speakeasy. So you've got this yeah. giant gorilla, literal gorilla in a suit who, who stops him at the door uh, where he says the password, you know, Walt sent me. And he, a great password. Yeah, and he walks in. And we know he's been there. He's probably been there before in his earlier days where he worked tune stuff more. But just the the flurry of cartoons all over the room. And I love that, like, cartoon sensibility kind of follows them even in the real world. So, like, you know, he says he orders scotch on the rocks and he remembers, I got to tell, I mean ice. And, of course, they serve him actual rocks because that's cartoon logic. Right, right, right. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I don't know if you have an improv background. Doug, oh yeah, no, you're many years of improv. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it's yeah, it's it's like a the this would be a movie I would show to like beginners at, of improv, just like uh, to establish like game and rules of like the like yeah, like the the tunes are on a different vibration, and so they are always playing the tune game, and for you know. Someone like Eddie Valley to come in is like, oh, like now the fun is him being this out of context character trying to fit in the context of their world. And it's just like, um, yeah, it's just, it's a brilliant, the whole movie is just chock full of, oh man, yeah, I had a lot of fun writing the scene. <laughs> is what it feels like. Well, and I think the, some of the best parts of the movie are when those worlds collide a little more. So sometimes when the, right. when the tunes get more serious, and when Eddie gets more silly. Uh, oh, yeah. 
And so, like, we get one of those moments here where he meets Betty Boop. And, you know, she's black and white. She says she's been, she hasn't been gotten, getting as much work since cartoons oh, went to color. Yeah. You know. Betty? Long time no see. What are you doing here? Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, be doop, boop. Yeah, you still got it. What's with him? Mr. Acme never misses a night when Jessica performs. Got a thing for rabbits, huh? I still got it, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's uh, that scene always, uh, yeah, it always makes me good. It's it's a little too close to home. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, yeah, seeing an out of work tune, just desperate to impress, you know. Uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing they would go for again in like Wreck It Ralph when they have like the out of work, you know, Qbert characters. But this is this actually is much harder. Like she's selling cigarettes in this dive, you know. It's yeah. it's much sadder. In the dive that she started, you know, like Betty Boop is she's one of the originals, right? You know, so right. it's just like it's a very you know the even again if you are new to the world, the context. I'm a fan of like you know things that like you know, and that's what cinema does is like. Tells you a million, tells you a million worse stories with one picture, you know. So, the context of Betty Boop selling cigarettes says so much. And this is, of course, against the backdrop. Uh, we've just seen Donald and Daffy have their their team up, which is yeah. You, you couldn't ask for a better way to like pair these two characters. No. I work with a lot of wise quackers, but you are despicable. This is the last time I work with someone with a speech impediment. This means war. So do we want to get to uh, <laughs> what Eddie finds? Well, we'll get there. Yeah, I just wanted to mention. So uh, one thing about the, the Donald and Daffy pairing. So. Obviously, this is a Disney production. They couldn't just use Warner Brothers characters because they felt like it. They had to get Warner Brothers permission. And the deal they worked out was like basically like equal time in politics. So that's why you have a lot of these scenes where it's like it's Bugs and Mickey or Donald and Daffy. Or at the end, it's Porky Pig and Tinkerbell, right? They they kind of make sure everybody's paired up to make it even. No, which is which only works in benefit for the film because it shows you like establishes how large the world is. Right. right. Like, it, you could have made them all original characters in the movie, but like having the all these cameos from known cartoons, it, yeah. I mean, one it's just fun to see all of these characters. But yeah, you're right. Like it makes the world feel much more fleshed out. Yeah, it makes it. it see, you know, uh, no pun intended, but it makes the world feel a lot more real. Seeing these other animated characters together. Uh, and just kind of hanging out again, being working stiffs, getting a drink after work. Yeah, it's and like you know, all while the subtext is, hey, you're at the the you know the Negro Club, <laughs> you know, like this is the jazz club, the Devil Music Club. But instead of all of those things, it's where the tunes hang out, right? Um, and again, like yeah, there's so many stories that could be told in that world. Uh, yeah. 
Oh, and so this is where um, we meet Stubby K as Marvin Acme, and he squirts Eddie with the Chekhov's disappearing, reappearing ink. Yes. Um, super important. I just want to not mention that because that will be extremely important at the end of the movie. Uh, and we find out what Marvin Acme is there to see because he comes every time. And now we're at uh, Doug and Tarek's sexual awakening. You had plenty money, nineteen twenty-two. You let other women make a fool of you. Why don't you do right? Like some other <laughs> I just want to say, Stubby K is to me always going to be nicely, nicely Johnson. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, from Guys and Dolls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his his uh, sit down, you're rocking a boat rendition to me still like it still gives me chills. Um, but yeah, like uh, it's uh, also beautiful casting because that movie is also very like you know it's a. Uh, the musical, but the the, the, the the movie version that he was in, Stubby K was in with Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, it's set in a cartoon world, you know, like with real people. Uh, so it makes sense that Stubby K is the, um, you know, it's kind of his name, last name is Acme, and he's playing patty cake with... Uh, with a very atomically, anatomically correct kind of drawn character that confused the hell out of me when I was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't confuse me so much like, you know, unconfused me. Uh, I don't know. I'm saying a lot of weird things now. It, set, it sets in very high bars for, for women in my life to clear, for sure. <laughs> like, the whole thing to talk about is uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable talking about it now. I was uncomfortable then. Um, I had so many, like, questions. I was just like, wait a second. Why, like, I've played patty cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's never explained. Like, that is the weirdest thing. Like, it's not this totally, like, platonic, asexual, like, you know, literally, like, hand-slapping game they play. Um, You know, that, that Eddie catches them doing. And that musical number is incredible as she yes. again like struts around again interacting with like his tie and stuff the technical wizardry yeah. the way her dress shimmers is like that's really just amazing too as an animation it's amazing feat. animation do we know who the singing voice was uh i didn't know it's not kathleen turner i did not look up who it is but she's perfect it's that very it's, this is this yeah. you know smoky version of uh why don't you do right yeah it's such a great like that's the version of the song that still remains in my head. And then to go, and yeah, they never explained what Patty Cake was, but I guess that was like, you know, again, I'm eight or nine. I'm nine or ten, actually. And so that was like my foray into foreplay. And I'm like, that's that's what's happening right now. Um, With a cartoon. 
cartoon and never really considered cartoons. No, that's probably not true. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats also probably confused me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, it was definitely a moment and took the film to a different level. Um, where, you know, before it's like, all right, murder, you know, you can still kind of, you know, all these things can kind of get past your head as a child. But the pancake definitely <laughs> Get past you. Um, No. So yeah, it's a very interesting, um, very brave. I'm happy they included it in. I'm happy that like it also gave something about that, not about that scene, but something about it just like uh, alone, but something about it just confirmed. Like, wait a minute, this world is dangerous. This world is. They're tunes, but they're consequences. They're, to me, even more than we'll get to the scene later, but, like, uh, it's just like, oh, this, these are lived, lived in, breathing, alive things that can hurt, that can feel, that can laugh, that can love, and it, and it, it adds another dimension to the film. Well, and our Cameroon, I think, says it perfectly, says something about, you know, you can drop a safe on his head, and he'll get right back up, but you can break his heart just like anybody else. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah, uh, and we're about to get there, basically, because the next thing after, you know, patty cake, patty cake, is the transition to Roger looking at the pictures saying patty cake. And I love this transition because he's flipping the pictures so fast in his hands that they move. Like, he is literally creating the illusion that animation is built yeah. on. It's so perfect. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great meta-commentary. Uh, and gag, visual gag. Um, but I, I, I think my he is steadfast that she's faithful. You know. Take comfort, son. You're not the first man whose wife baked patty cake on him. I took the pictures myself. She played patty cake. No, not my Jessica. Not patty cake. This is impossible. I don't believe it. It can't be. It just can't be. Jessica's my wife. It's absolutely impossible. Jessica, the light of my life. The apple of my eye. The green of my coffee. We better start drinking it black because Acme's taking the clean now. Hard to believe. Marvin Acme's been my friend and neighbor for 30 years. Who would have thought he was a sugar daddy? Somebody must have made it do it. Right. He says, she's faithful. You know, we'll, we'll be happy. Double H-A-P-P-I. Uh, and he says, and he takes that drink or, or someone gives him the, the shot of whiskey or whatever it is. And we see for the first time what happens when he does that, which is this cartoon explosion. I don't know how else to describe this reaction he has. But a- after that is when he like threatens everybody, you know, and then does the class he bursts out of the window leaving the roger rabbit silhouette hole in in the wall in the windows and for the life of me i don't know how they did that because obviously 
the the hole's not a cartoon. He like busts through like the blinds and the glass and the wall, and it's perfect. It is absolutely perfect, and you can't tell how they did it. That is one of the best magic tricks in the whole movie. Yeah, it's a great it's a great visual effect, um, and one of the things that yeah I've spent many of many hours trying to figure out. Like, all right, did they like put squibs in the wall and the shape of a bunny? <laughs> And, and hit it at the, at the right time like what yeah how did that work I don't know I didn't watch it with the commentary on or anything I'm sure you can find out how they did all this stuff but I'd honestly I'd rather not know yeah 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 no it's it's, uh, it's about the experience yeah uh, and so we kind of get like the aftermath of that so we get one scene which I know they added into the movie late in production I think it was the last thing they animated that scene of like Roger looking at pictures of him and Jessica and crying um, just to kind of humanize him a little more, you know, give you that pathos and also really hammer home, you know, he didn't do it. He, he didn't commit the crime that's about to happen. Uh, and Eddie goes home and they do this trend. So, you know, he, he basically falls asleep at his desk and they pan around the room and there's some really fun stuff. Like you know, they, they show you one is that thing of like he, his dad was a circus clown and him and his, you know, that, that will set up his like circus routine later. The other one that my favorite thing is there's a bunch of like headlines showing his success from when they used to work with tunes. And my favorite was this is goofy cleared of spy charges. That's the prequel I want. Gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the idea of, of goofy being accused of being a spy. And so this is 47. So he would have been a spy for the Nazis, the Japanese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like the red scare is, is like right on the cusp. So it wasn't that. It was, so yeah, he had to be like <laughs> see like um, uh, Lindbergh was. You know, they accused Lindbergh of being a spy for the Nazis, and it's just like was he on the list with Lindbergh? Lindbergh <laughs> and Goofy, like <laughs> Nazi spies. It's like oh, yeah. Um, it was probably Pluto. <laughs> you can't trust Pluto. He doesn't talk. He doesn't talk. Yeah. Um, plays dumb. We all yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great office. One of my favorite tropes of noir is the private eye office. Um, oh yeah, this is right up there with like Sam Spade's office in Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Maltese Falcon. I love that like frosted glass window. With the you know with the detective name on it, and you get to see. All right, who is the character through the photos? And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier how you wanted to be an animator. I had the same thing. Um, didn't quite work out, but nope. the height of pandemic I had, I started my own, uh, because we couldn't go anywhere, I did a webcomic called Apple City. Yeah, it's great. You should go check it out if, uh, if people haven't. It's, it's really cool. Well, thank you. But, yeah, it's very much, like, in that, like, any Valiant, like, I, I got to design my own private eye office, right? And, like, mm-hmm. for my main character and, like, you know, the Eddie Valiant, Sam Spade, all that was definitely chiming in my head when I was designing that office. And, uh, yeah, it's, like, again, going back to, like, I wish I could be an actor just to be on the set. Just, like, look at the props, you know, like, prop masters, like, and, and set designers, they put so much into like photos in the wall and stuff that you may not catch but they have like full fully fleshed out backstories of like oh yeah that's why he wears this color or why this is there and 
just being able to soak all that up to me is like one of the favorite things about this business. Yeah, totally. Um, And speaking of like set design, we're about to go to one of my favorite sets in the movie, which is, uh, you know, he's, he's woken up by the police lieutenant or whatever he is. And he is told that overnight Marvin Acme was killed. So someone dropped a safe on his head and uh, we go to Marvin Acme's warehouse on the border of Toontown and we get to see, like, there's a lot of, like, time they spend lovingly going through all of the, like, cartoon shit that's just there. Like, you know, the, we see the, like, the, the, the hole, the hole in the wall, the, the mallet that, like, the boxing glove comes out of on a spring. All that stuff is there. And, uh, we, we get the whole thing. Uh, we get, and we get to meet uh, Judge Doom and, and watch him do one of the saddest things I've ever seen on screen. I'm surprised you're not more cooperative, Mr. Valiant. A human has been murdered by a tomb. Don't you appreciate the magnitude of that? Since I've had Toontown under my jurisdiction, my goal has been to rein in the insanity. And the only way to do that is to make tombs respect the law. Judge. I spread a bunch of simoleons around Toontown a couple years back. Bought the election. Huh? What's that? Remember how we always thought there wasn't a way to kill a tomb? Well, Doom found the way. Turpentine, acetone, benzene. He calls it the dip. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I still think about that shoe, but it's such a, it's like, hey, how do I, inter- how do I instill to you just how threatening and evil this character is? Like, there's a look the shoe gives to him and everyone adds it's dying, and it's just like, it, it still, like, crushes me, it crushes my heart, like, uh, and again, they spent, we've been how long into the movie now? We're like, uh, before not, Doom was introduced. Yeah, not quite a third. Not quite a third, but enough to establish that these tunes live, breathe, like everything we talked about, right? Like, mm-hmm. have their hearts broken, hearts broken. So when this tune is being executed in such a horrendous way. Having committed no crime. Having committed no crime, it's like, Oh my god, are they gonna bring it back? Like I remember literally thinking, like, no, all right, they gotta bring it back. Like, or like someone can read, be- like they don't show like how where the tunes come from. Like, can someone right. redraw the shoe? Like, no, right. I guess not. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it messed me up. <laughs> it messed me up. Yeah, it's 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 totally fucked up, and it and it kind of goes back to that thing I was saying earlier about like the two tier justice system that like. He can just publicly execute this tune. No, there's no due process. There's no trial. He, the, the shoe did nothing. And like, he's, you know, it's just, 
he can just do that because he has that power. And they lay in a couple of like the movie I think does a good job of explaining the great conspiracy um, that's behind it. One of the things that and some there's some little details they drop. So like for example, they talk about um, how he Judge Doom became a judge because he bought the election. And later on, of course, when we find out who he really is, we have learned that he at some point he robbed the first bank of Toontown. That's when he killed Eddie's brother. So he stole the money that he later used to buy the election to become the, this powerful judge. And I assume to head Cloverleaf and all the other stuff he's doing. Yes. Let me just say, Christopher Lloyd has always been one of my favorite actors uh, since Taxi. And then, you know, Doc Brown and, you know, we, uh, we've seen Christopher Lloyd in all these films. But there's something about Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom. The way he moves, and all of these like indicators, like so. Again, you know, spoiler alert. You know, <laughs> yeah. he, he's a tune in a man suit. Yeah, he's a tune in a man suit, which I want to talk about a little bit further. But like, there are all these indicators and performance cues that he's doing in that scene, and like when you first see him, it's like, oh yeah, no, this dude is off. And it's not just, and you think it's just because he's, oh, playing a cartoonishly villain. Again, no pun, uh, pun intended, but like, oh, there is, oh, there's a reason he's putting on that rubber glove. There's a reason uh, he talks a certain way. His teeth are so white. Oh, and it's, everything is so perfectly considered and it blends with the performance and. Yeah. For, yeah, it's the for me it's the delivery, the line delivery, and the body movements. He really sells that, like, yeah, he's wearing this rubber skin um, because he his just the way his face moves, it feels like that. I don't know, it, it's it's very subtle. All of this stuff for like as broad as it comes across, there's so much subtle stuff going on in the performance that uh, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, yeah. Uh, so Eddie goes back to his office. He finds baby Herman there who gives him the first clue about, you know, what's going on with Marvin Acme's will, because this guy you know, lived and breathed tunes. He loved tunes. He would have left Toontown to us. And if no one could find his will, then it the, the property we find out is going to divert to, I think, Maroon and then Cloverleaf is buying Maroon, I think is the way it's working. Yeah. You valiant. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the Acme murder. Hey, psst, Dal, why don't you run downstairs and get me a racing form? Oh, okay, okay, I'm going. The ladies, man, huh? My problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a 3-year-old dinky. Yeah, must be tough. Look, Valiant, the rabbit didn't kill Acme. He's not a murderer. I should know. He's a dear friend of mine. I tell you, Valiant, the whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Look at this. The paper said Acme left no will. That's a load of sucker dash. Every tune knows Acme had a will. He promised to leave Toontown to us tunes. That will is the reason he got pumped off. Yeah, so this is now the like the MacGuffin in the movie. He's like, what happened to Marvin Acme's will? And when he goes into his office, he looks at the pictures he took of Jessica Rabbit and Marvin Acme, and he can see the will is in his pocket. Yeah. yeah. I love details like that. It's always my favorite, like... Will. <laughs> yeah. Will. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and it's, it's 
first time I'm like, you know, invested in, in, a, as a, in a conspiracy as a kid. You know, films like that before, if they, if they involved it, it went over my head. But this was, this is one of the first films that I was like following along with the mystery. And I love that the mystery here, like, clearly these guys know that this, you know, owes a debt to Chinatown. Which, because the nature of the conspiracy is very similar. Like Chinatown is all about water rights and infrastructure. And here it's about building the freeway, we find out. And again, an infrastructure thing uh, behind all of the machinations. So like, they definitely know what they're doing here. Um, so uh, so he, but he comes home and he flops into his bed behind his filing cabinet, this like Murphy bed, which is awesome. And Roger's there waiting for him. Yeah. What, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the, the you know, kind of the Chinatown, the, uh, what, you know, the, the conspiracy in Chinatown, similar to this, but also I'm like, there are a lot of noir films that kind of deal with the same, the, you know, the, the highway through you know, through L.A., a lot of, and especially a lot of noir films that take place in L.A., they all kind of talk about the same thing. Um, you know, if it's not the Black Dahlia murder, mm-hmm. right, which is also kind of linked to that same stuff, you know, think about the L.A. noir video game and, like, how these developmental deals in, in conjunction with the kind of Icarus tragedy of that is Hollywood and Hollywood's fame and stardom. I don't know. I think there's something, I don't know if anyone has ever really kind of linked together all that. A lot of these films kind of, even if they're all different, are kind of alluding to the same mystery, um, to the same villain, to the same conspiracy. Um, yeah, well, it's always about how the powerful take advantage of the powerless, right? Right. And then how they have to conceal what they're doing to avoid, you know, the, the cleansing light of public scrutiny. And so, you know, so for example, we'll learn later. So Maroon tells Eddie that the pictures of Roger are need or of Jessica are needed because Roger is distracted at work, um, which is a lie. The, and, and what's happening is Maroon tells Jessica go get your picture taken because these pictures will be used to not to blackmail Roger or to influence him, but to blackmail Acme to pre- because he Maroon actually wants to prevent the, the property of Toontown to be divested to Cloverleaf. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it's again, like all of these machinations between powerful people, not knowing what the other one is doing. Like it's so quintessential noir. It's quintessential noir. I think there's also something about, the fact that a lot, like, you see, like, this film was, that was made in 88 talking about a fake circumstance, you know, there are no cartoon characters in reality, right? But, like, the highway is real. The, the powerful taking advantage of the disempowered is real. But in the moment in 1947 when these things were happening, no one, you know... The, the cynicism that we have developed, like, post-60s in our institutions and government, like, you know, noir is older than that, but, like, we now see the machinations. We see the result of the machinations 
of those things that were happening there. We know, like, oh, these neighborhoods don't exist anymore. Those color neighborhoods, those two, that Toontown doesn't exist anymore. Right. It's now a highway, and we see that. And we can reflect on that in the art that we're creating now. And, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's something that fascinates me about this film and why I think it has so much rewatch value. Because um, there's this, it's firing on all cylinders and saying a lot. 100%. And that's, I think, emblematic of the way, of, of what happens when Roger shows up at Eddie's apartment, because yes, there's a lot of like kind of just cartoon hijinks about it, but there's also some very real shit that comes out where Roger basically is telling him like, if they catch me, I'm dead. I'm as good as dipped because I don't have, you know, I, I don't have a, a trial where I can clear my name. They're just going to throw me in a barrel. also where you know we see you know he touches one of my other favorite like technical things he touches teddy valiant's chair and you know eddie yells at him you know get out of that chair and because you know that's my brother's chair and he um he moves his hand away and there's like that print from his hand in the dust yeah yeah so good and i I love the line he says oh whatever happened to him he seemed like a uh, a sober fellow <laughs> Roger is like he's usually pretty like loony in his humor, but every once in a while he'll like throw out this like more cutting line, which is great. I mean, it's such a it's. I mean, I've talked a lot about Christopher Lloyd and Bob Hoskins, but the voice acting of Charles Fleischer is something that should be noted. Um, the life that he he's not doing a Bugs Bunny impression. He's not doing an impression of any tune I can think of. It's wholly original but also fits in that world. Like, it's, oh, I, the voice coming out of Roger Rabbit totally makes sense and is a real character. It's like he's he's doing a real acting, of course he is, but, you know, I feel like you have to explain, he is doing real acting, heavy lifting, doing the voice of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Like, to have those biting comments in the lunatic, and the lunacy that is this cartoon character. He's also Benny the Cab, and I think he's a few other voices in the film. Yeah. Uh, I did actually meet him once very, very briefly. Uh, his daughter, who happens to be named Jessica, I'm not sure if that's if she was born before the movie or not, um, mm-hmm. but she was in our improv group for a while, our, our theater. And I, wow. I, I, for a long time, I didn't put her name, oh, this girl, Jessica Fleischer. Like, I never put it together, you know, for a while, until, like, I think he showed up, and I'm like, Fucking Roger Rabbit. Like, you know, it took me a second. Um, but that's my one Charles Fleischer story. It's not a story, but anyway. Um, no, that's really cool. It was, it was, a, it was a nice moment. Cause yeah, like I said, this movie always loomed large for me. And that performance is, I still don't know how he does, I can't do that please thing he does with his cheek. Oh, yeah. 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 I, that, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. do it. I, I've met very few people who can. So yeah, so we have this thing where the weasels show up. Uh, Eddie hides him in the sink. 
And, uh, and then as soon as they're gone, they go across the street to stash him at the, at the bar because the bar used to be a speakeasy and there's a secret room behind it. So he's going to chill out there for a while while Eddie does some more investigating. And then we get to this transition that makes no sense because there's a scene missing. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me more about the scene. I'm not remembering. Yeah, it. yeah. The, the next time you watch it, you'll go. So the next scene is uh, in the movie as you know, in the theatrically cut version. Uh, Jessica is at Eddie's uh, office and to basically say, you know, I don't. I think my husband is innocent. There's a sound of you see her behind the glass. There's the sound of a toilet flushing. And Eddie walks out with his pants on and a tie and bare, otherwise bare-chested. Yes. It's fucking baffling because there's a scene, a whole scene missing. And it's entirely animated. You can go watch it on YouTube. They actually finished the entire thing, spent the money to do oh, this wow. scene. And it's great. It's a really cool scene. He goes back. What, so what actually happens is he goes back to the Ink and Paint Club to look for the will. While he's there, he is accosted by the Weasels and Judge Doom. And there's this cool scene between him and Jessica's there and Judge Doom is there. And Doom basically you know, says, you know, basically says, quit sniffing around is the, the sentiment. I forget the exact lines that are said. Pick him up. <laughs> Rummaging around in a lady's dressing room. Tisk, tisk, tisk. What were you looking for, Mr. Valiant? Last week, some heavy breather wanted one of my nylons as a souvenir. Look, doll. If I'd have wanted underwear, I'd have broken into Fredericks of Hollywood. You know damn well I was looking for Marvin Acme's will. Marvin Acme had no will. I should know the estates in my jurisdiction. Well, that was a will, all right. The Sheenock came Maroon killed him for it. That's absurd. Someone else is in here looking for the will, too. Probably Maroon's flunkies. I would have caught him, too. If Cheetah here hadn't have interrupted me. Take it easy, Mongo. We'll handle Mr. Valiant our own way. Downtown. Downtown? Fine. Let's get a hold of Santino. I'd be more than happy to go downtown. Oh, I'm not talking about that downtown. I'm talking about downtown Toontown. <laughs> you were warned to stay out of this case value. But you didn't. <laughs> no, not Tuntown. No, please. No. The Weasels then throw a bag over Eddie's head and kidnap him to Toontown. We don't see Toontown. We just see them drive into it. Then there's a transition from night to day. They come out of Toontown. Eddie is tossed out of the car with a bag on his head. And he pulls the bag off of his head, and he has this giant cartoon pig head on top of his head. And he says something like, oh, God, I've been tuna rude. And he goes home to wash off the tune head, and that's when Jessica shows up at his office. And I like it. I mean, one, obviously, it helps make this transition make sense. Um, it does kind of slow the pacing down a little, but it, but to go back to a noir thing, it really mirrors the like scene when in Chinatown when Jack Nicholson gets his nose cut by yeah, Roman Polanski. Yeah. yeah, it's a brutal scene, but it's also but that's also a trope in noir. Like your your noir detective is you know never is unscathed. 
you know, and if they are like, if they are, if they're on skates, the majority of the film, um, thinking of the Robert Mitchell film out of the, out of the darkness, is that the name of the film? But like, you know, he's on skates for the majority of film. And it's like, Oh, that means it's going to be a really tragic ending. Mm -hmm. You know, like noir detectives, they get beat up, you know, they get, they get hassled. They get, you know, um, whether it's Easy Rollins and Devil in the Blue Dress, whether it's Jake in Chinatown, like, uh, and Eddie Valiant and Roger Rabbit, like, your detective is going to get messed up because they're snooping around where they shouldn't be snooping around. So, yeah, they should have kept the scene in. Yeah, go watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's, it's a neat I little moment. I am going to check it out. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. I particularly like the scene with, with Doom and Jessica, too, because he's he's threatening, and it helps add to this like lingering question of like what side is Jessica on. So it's, 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 well, this scene builds into that, too, because she, she I mean, she, it turns out she's being sincere when she tells Eddie, you know, she knows, she believes her husband is innocent. Um, but it comes across as like, well, I can't trust her at all. Um, right. Uh, and then, yeah, Dolores pops in, catches them together, and tells him she learned, uh, you know, there's no, no one can find the will. There's an issue at probate. And so they go back over to the bar to, to check in on Roger. And, oh, I'm sorry, did we, uh, was this with a handcuff scene? No, that was earlier. Um, I, I love that scene with the handcuffs, too, that line. Hold still, will ya? Does this help? Yeah, thanks. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> Come on, Eddie, where's your sense of humor? He always is funny or only on days when he's wanted for murder? Listen, my philosophy is this. If you don't have a good sense of humor, you're better off dead. You just make it your wish unless I can figure out what happened to this. What is it, Eddie? Just look at it. Mr. Rackney's will. Yeah, and I think Maroon played the part of sound mind and your wife the sound body. Why, I resent that innuendo. What's the scheme, Eddie? I don't think they got to the will. <laughs> but how do you know? Because they were still looking for it after they killed him. Anything I can do? Maybe you could go downtown and check the probate. Yeah, check the probate. Why, my Uncle Thumper had a problem with his probate, and he had to take these big pills and drink lots of water. That prostate, you idiot, probate. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that's, yeah, go ahead. Playing, playing, uh, playing the improv rules of the tune. Yeah. But he also gives that uh, impassioned kind of moment there where he says, hey, you know, some, sometimes making people laugh is all we got, right? That's our, you know, my sole purpose in life is to make people laugh and uh, laughter is the only weapon we have. Like that, that stuck with me as like someone who wanted to do comedy or, or you know, perform. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Comedy's noble. But there's also something, and I wonder, for me, like, I feel like coming from a marginalized community, right? Like, that's something that I know a lot of black comedians have said. I know a lot of women who are comedians have said, like, yeah, comedy is our weapon. Uh, I know a lot of uh, people from the uh, comedians from the Jewish community have said, like, That's comedy me. is our weapon, right? Like, it's, you know, and so to hear that come from this tune of, like, hey, it's the one thing I got. It's the, you know, my armament is to disarm you, right? Like, there's something really deep and resonant about that line. Yeah, this stuck out to me too because I, I am Jewish and the, 
you know, people talk about, oh, well, Jews run Hollywood and all this kind of anti-Semitic crap. But where that comes from is being an actor and being a performer was not always glamorous. It was considered to be something that, like, only the lower classes would ever get involved in. So these guys who were, like, you know, Jewish borscht belt comedians, they got in on the ground floor. And that's why there was always some Jewish influence or presence in Hollywood. And so, like, that, I see that mirrored in the tunes here. Absolutely. They're like, yeah, that, that's, all, that's all they're good for is getting hit on the head with a safe. And if they're not, then they're hawking cigarettes. Yeah, a lot of people really, if, uh, my, my kingdom to teach an accurate American history course about the power dynamics and caste system of this country and, like, and how people who on the far right are idiots now, like, you know, like, oh, you really, like, you don't know what it, what it was. You don't know, you know, they don't have a context for why they hate things. <laughs> And, you know, of course that's on purpose, because if they were given context, we'd be like, oh, oh, that, oh, so, oh, it was a caste system, and, yeah, um, there, you know, Jewish people weren't considered white men, like, neither were Italians, or Irish, or, uh, or Polish people, like, there was a caste system, and you did what you could do, and people made that work to their benefit. Yeah, now there's a great story about uh, Groucho Marx, who, uh, you know, of course was Jewish, and, you know, and they, you know, obviously a wildly popular, famous guy, was at some sort of like a swimming club with his family, and someone had to walk up to him and go like, hey, you know, no Jews allowed. And Groucho Marx, being the quick with a guy he is, just says, well, my son's half Jewish, can he go in up to his waist? And like... <laughs> That's a painful line, but like greatly delivered, of course, by one of the quickest wits in history. But yeah. like, it, you know, it speaks to like that's what Hollywood was in the forties, you know, and you know, to the lesser extent till today. But like, definitely then, yeah. it's um, what Hollywood was, and and lest we forget, right? That wasn't that long ago. That was not in the in the measurement of time. That was maybe a lifetime ago when that moment happened. Right. You know, uh, Jim Crow was in my dad's time, you know, like these, these things are not far removed from our past. And it's in this humor like that, you know, it's a bitter joke, that joke that you just told, Mm -hmm. but humor really is a weapon. Like it's, you know, it wasn't all just the civil rights movement. It, you know, or the civil rights movement had many different weapons. It wasn't just marching. It wasn't just, it was entertainment. It was satire. It was music, you know? Um, and, uh, like, it's a different podcast, but we could talk about mm-hmm. the black and Jewish coalition and entertainment and, and like, in conjunction with the civil rights movement, because it was there. And, uh, a lot of the reasons that we consider those things to be in the past is, I would dare I say, due to that coalition. Yeah. Um, but I am going to steer this back to Roger Rabbit because we're going to go way yes. off the rails. Um, so, yeah, so they go back to the, um, the, the bar where Roger is now entertaining everybody and holding court, doing absolutely what he should not be doing in order to lay low. And I love that, like, so Eddie 
you know, he, he has that moment where like the record is skipping and he's just banging plates over his head. Uh, again, tune logic. They, you know, Eddie sn- pushes him into the back room and says like, you know, what are you doing? That guy, Angelo would sell you out for a nickel. And Roger tells him, no, he won't. Cause I made him laugh. And we're about, that's about to be proven true because judge doom and the weasels walk in and he starts interrogating. And I love the way he says, like uh, he picks up the record. He goes, Oh, merry go round broke down. Quite a tune for a bunch of uh, a loony selection for a bunch of drunken reprobates. Like, the way those words come out of his mouth are just so like you can feel it's like artificial in some way. It's yeah. Yes, and yeah, it's um, the character of Judge Tune. Talk about. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure someone, whether it was in a course about racial dynamics, gender dynamics cultural dynamics could use the character of judge doom and do a whole piece like i if if i had a, if i had like a moment to do a piece on judge doom and clarence thomas and the self-hating like uh marginalized person like the self-hating like tune versus the self-hating black and like like the idea that he knows exactly how to hunt down roger rabbit he knows exactly what to do to push his buttons. No tune can resist the old shave and a haircut trick. Roger, no! See to him later. Right now, I feel like dispensing some justice. Bring me some dip. <laughs> Does the condemned have anything to say before his sentence is carried out? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dolores, bourbon, I'm making a double. Fine time for a drink, Eddie. Maybe you'd like a bowl of pretzels to go with it. Just pour the drink, Dolores. Hey, Judge! Doesn't a dying rabbit deserve a last request? Yeah, nose plugs would be nice. I think you want a drink. How about it, Judge? Well, why not? I'm prolonging the execution. I'm betrayed. Not like Petty. I'm trying to cut down. Drink the drink. But I don't want the drink. He doesn't want the drink. He does. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You don't. I do. You don't. I do. You don't. Listen, when I say I do, that means I do. Dave in the haircut. Like, I will, like, it's so creepy, and him knocking on the wall, and seeing that, you know, uh, Roger Rabbit can't resist, it's, um, I don't know, that, that scene says a lot, speaks a lot to me. Yeah, and so he bursts through the wall, and, like, again, like, 
Doom's ready to kill him right there. He's got the barrel, like, no trial, no nothing. Like, we're just going to shove him in this thing. And he's willing to grant one last request. So Eddie, you know, buys some time by making him drink some whiskey. But first they go through the classic Looney Tunes, you know, duck season, rabbit season bit, which, is, again, it's, like, great because, like, Eddie knows how to – he's worked with tunes in the past. He doesn't now yes. because a tune killed his brother. But he, you know, he knows exactly what to say to get Roger to do this. And it's, I remember, I don't, you don't, I don't, you don't, I don't. Yeah, like perfection from like a team that like clearly they know, they have a love of classic animation to put that in there. Yeah. He drinks it. He does the, um, the explosion again for what, I don't know what else to call this thing. And uh, it buys him enough time to get the hell out of there. Spring Benny the Cab from imprisonment because i forget why he's in the back of a squad car or uh, uh what do they call it paddy wagon yeah. but again something innocuous right he's already he's been incarcerated for no good reason and uh he's out and they're off yeah, if yeah. we consider that the, the tunes are black like there's no you know or any other black mexican any other like you know marginalized community isn't where they're supposed to belong Oh, that was quick character i love charles fleischer does a great job of differentiating that voice from roger it's you know great you'd never know they were the same uh actor uh and so yeah you have this chase through la uh as they have to get away which they do um it's just a lot of fun like again a lot of cool tricks there's some point in this where eddie himself is actually animated for blinking you'll miss it but it's because like they're doing something that's so complicated that they had to actually just draw Eddie, but it's very, very like I can't even figure out where this frame is, um, yeah. but it's in there. I, I, think, know I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think it's when he's like spinning around. He, like at one point, he spins around really, really, really fast in a way they probably just couldn't do without injuring Bob Hoskins. Yeah. So, a cool story about this I learned that so the he's sitting on like a rig. Obviously, it's like a little metal go kart, and they draw Benny the Cab over it. Zemeckis loved that thing, and he used the same like cart for filming in Back to the Future two and three. Mm. So that's kind of cool. I think it showed up in some other movie he was filming as well. So you mean to tell me that Bob Hoskins was in a cart and not a Bob real Bob. cartoon? Bob Hoskins of the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> yes, Mario was carting around. I, I yes. took, okay. thank you. I, it took me a second to get to make the connection. <laughs> The the one in the once and future true Mario. Yeah, Mario Mario. <laughs> that, that movie is its own weird nightmare. Um, yes, it is. So, uh, so they escape and they run off to a movie theater to to lay low in the balcony. 
Uh, and this is where Eddie finally kind of tells the full story of what happened to Teddy Valiant, that they loved working Toontown. They were investigating a robbery at the First Bank of Toontown. And um, this tune dropped a piano on the both of them. And Ed, Teddy was killed. Eddie was just injured. And he'll never forget the, the squeaky high voice and the crazy red eyes of that tune. What could have possibly happened to you to turn you into such a sourpuss? You want to know? I'll tell you. A tune killed my brother. A tune? No. That's right. A tune. We were investigating a robbery at the First National Bank of Toontown. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working Toontown. Thought it was a lot of laughs. Anyway, this guy got away with a zillion simoleons. We trailed into a little dive down on Yaxa Street. Went in. Only he got the drop on us. Literally. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Teddy never made it. I never did find out who that guy was. All I remember was him standing over me laughing with those burning red eyes and that high squeaky voice. He disappeared into Toontown after that. <laughs> no wonder you hate me. If a tune killed my brother, I'd hate me too. <laughs> Come on, don't cry. I don't hate you. If you do. No, I don't. You do hate me. Otherwise, you wouldn't have yanked my ears all those times. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the times you yanked my ears? All the times they yanked your ears. Yeah. They never... So the thing the film never does, it never... You know, that it's the first indication that, like, okay, there's this other larger mystery out there. Who killed Teddy Valiant? Um, and it was a tune. What, and, like, you know, it's just like a splinter in your brain. But, like, the idea of that, that description of, like, these red eyes and that high-pitched voice and like what tune did this to me it was always interesting of like alright who who is this tune what does this tune look like is this a tune we know is this a tune we've seen before yeah it's, it's a it's a it's a tragic backstory but again just makes the world so much like that much more fleshed out and lived in and again, there's a, a clue there, right? Because the, he was killed by something being dropped on his head, just like Marvin Acme was. Right. Yeah. Um, and I love sort of the little things, the, the things in and around the scene where, like, you know, they're stuck, you know, they're watching this goofy cartoon and Roger's just, you know, oh, that goofy, what a genius. And uh, and then this newsreel starts up. And, like, that was new to me. As a kid, like, I didn't understand, like, you'd go to the movies and there would be, like, a cartoon and a newsreel. Like, my grandmother had to explain that to me. Like, oh, yeah, when I went to the movies, that was something they did all the time. Yeah, my dad, he still talks about how, like, movies were a whole of, like, it was a day event. He would say, like, you know, my dad had a bunch of brothers and, you know, did not grow up wealthy at all. But, like, movies were affordable. And it was, you know, daycare, like, 
it was no daycare. <laughs> it was one of the things that, you know, my dad said is my grandfather did was dropped him and his brothers off at the movie, gave them 50 cents. Like, it was 25 cents to see a movie, two movies, uh, a reel, a newsreel, a cartoon, and then they would have money for popcorn and candy. And it's just like, that is a movie experience. And how much are we spending for movies now? And like, and I couldn't imagine just dropping my children off unsupervised to do that right. either. Yeah. Well, that is a different time. Like, yeah. it was my parents did that with me. Like, I, me and my friends, we got dropped off at, I saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure with my best friend. And I was six. And. Mm. My parents were close by, but they trusted, like, all right, they'll be in the movie theater, and when the movie's over, we'll be outside. So you had to get traumatized by Large Marge all by yourself out there? I jumped out of my seat into <laughs> my friend's lap, and he jumped into my arm. Like, it was it was like a cartoon, like, when characters <laughs> get scared and they wrap around each other. Yeah. That Large Marge scene made me into a cartoon. Traumatized me to this day. Yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is in that top 10 with Roger Rabbit. Right, I'm going to file that away for later. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I love Roger's reaction to the newsreel. It's like, oh, boring. And I'm like, yeah, as a kid, like, that would have been my reaction, too. Like, the news is boring. Uh, but, of course, this is the clue that breaks it for Eddie about Cloverleaf and Maroon, uh, or Maroon being sold to to Cloverleaf. That Cloverleaf, if you haven't said it, but it's been in the background, that Cloverleaf is buying up the the red car, which is the public transportation system in L.A. And we don't know why. Like, they keep talking about it, but the reason for that won't be apparent until later. Um, So he goes to confront Maroon about this, and he, you know, puts his tie in that editing machine to, like, really threaten him. And Maroon says, uh, you know, hey, you know, I I love the tunes. You know, I I didn't want him to get hurt. I didn't want to see Toontown destroyed. And before he can explain what that means, he takes two in the back. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me see that will. I told you I got it. I want to see it now. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. This is supposed to be a joke. No, this is... Get up. What are you going to do to me, Valiant? I'm going to listen to you spin the Cloverleaf scenario. The story of greed, sex, and murder. And the parts that I don't like, I'm going to let it out. You got it all wrong. I'm a cartoon maker, not a murderer. Everybody's got to have a hobby. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. The truth is I had a chance to sell my studio. But Cloverleaf wouldn't buy my property unless Acme sold him his. The stubborn bastard wouldn't sell, so I was going to blackmail Acme with pictures of him and the rabbit's wife. Blackmail, that's all. I've been around tools all my life. I didn't want to see him destroyed. Tools destroyed? Why? If I tell you I'm a dead man. You're a dead man if you don't tell me. Unless Acme's will shows by midnight tonight, Toontown's going to be left with a freak. That's the end of R.K. Maroon. That's the end of R.K. Maroon, played by the British actor, Alan Tilvern. Alan Tilvern. I did not know he was an English actor. 
You wouldn't tell from looking at it. It's a good uh, good enough American. And I love that his name is Maroon because that's such a cart, you know, Bugs Bunny classic. <laughs> what a Maroon. What a Maroon, yeah. Uh, that also has a very interesting history as an insult. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> I bet I know where this is going. Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 I, I will probably butcher the history there, but yeah, it definitely goes into... Yeah, it was, I think, the term the term used to describe enslaved Africa, escape the slave Africans in the islands. Hmm. You know, coming in from a ship, and whether they either jump ship or, or if they... Is this it when they would... Sometimes it'd be a slave rebellion, and they would very seldomly take over a slave ship or a plot of land, uh, like in Saint Dominique and uh, what is Haiti. Like there was an area of kind of freed slaves or escaped slaves that was kind of that area, and like that's a maroon area. Like hmm. those maroons got that. I think I'm pretty sure that's kind of the origin of the word. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's just like yeah. You know, uh, we have a fucked up history. Yeah. I didn't even know. See, if only they had taken that left turn at Albuquerque, they would have been okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, and so uh, Eddie spots Jessica fleeing the scene. He goes after her. He assumes that Roger, who he left behind to, like, I guess, cover his his exit or something, uh, is just he assumes Roger was just gone. Um, so he takes off after Jessica, who goes into Toontown, and we go into this crazy-ass sequence because they've been teasing Toontown this whole time. We've been getting sort of glimpses of, like, the border of it. But the you know, he goes to that tunnel, which is, you know, right off the five in, in L.A. Yeah. So we, now we know Toontown is, like, around, like, I don't know, Glendale-ish. Yeah. Um, so they go through it. Uh, and I love that, like, it, you get that, like, classic, like, boring, like, rubber cartoon sound as the curtain goes up. And it is, like... 40s looking animation all over the place uh, as they sing Smile Darn You Smile. Yeah, it's such a great segment. Um, and it's confirmed to me that, like, oh, tunes are just extra dimensional beings. Like, <laughs> somehow there's a portal from our world to theirs, and Einstein Rosen Bridge is that tunnel, and you end up in an animated world, and they can come into our world, or we can go into theirs. But yeah, I love that segment. I love Toontown, Toontown. I love. I was still young enough where I'm like, I want to be there. Um, old enough to know, like, I can't. Young enough to know that I still want it to be. It's really fun. It's also though it doesn't lose any menace. Like it always feels kind of threatening to be there. Like it is like maybe because everything is so frenetic, but also like you know, and anthropomorphize like the buildings have faces on them and they're bouncing up and down and. Like, even just that elevator ride with Droopy. Like, Droopy, like, fucks Eddie up by going, like, too fast, too slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going up here. Mind the steps, sir. Hold on, sir. Your floor, sir. Have a good day, sir. Also, the, yeah, the cartoon physics apply to Eddie in this part of town. 
That's that's right. Um, yeah, you realize that the the world that the tunes come from is very unstable. Like, <laughs> it, it's like that all the time. Which you know, I wonder if you know, I I I doubt this was a commentary. It might be since they've commented so much and like we're using tunes as kind of an allegory to talk about marginalized communities. But I there's now like kind of this. In my brain, uh, this uh, angle of immigration of coming from an unstable place, a place that has been destabilized, and having some stability in this place that you're not welcome at, and you're on the margins of, um, and wondering if, like, oh, yeah, is that why they, they got their bar here? And, you know, you get to see some of these tunes, like, in our world, and here they can be a little bit more, have a little bit more stability. Um are they going for the same kind of American dream that people who left Haiti or Eastern Europe or Italy? Like, is it a similar thing? I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's kind of the correlation. I'm yeah, making. I mean, Judge Doom says as much because he says one of his goals is to, quote, rein in the insanity. Right. right, right. So he is, you know, he certainly looks at Toontown. You know, he, he would consider himself probably to be embarrassed to be a tune, right? He is that self-hating tune. And it is, I mean, it is uh, a lot to take um, because it is pretty wild there. Um, although we don't, we don't get to spend a lot of time in it. So it's a little hard to know, but like, there's a lot of like illogical things. Like, you know, he goes to the top of this building. He is accosted by Lena Hyena, uh, who he tries to get away from. Who's, yeah, this, yeah. she looks like Jessica almost until she turns around. Yeah. Terrifying. Um, uh, yeah. Not as scary as Large Marge, but still very terrifying it's the eyes it's the like wild eyes i think and like the yeah. you know this is in line with something like pepe Le Pew. like you know he's you know she's after him uh and so he goes to the out of order bathroom which is like on the outside of the building and he has the wily e. coyote thing where he looks down for a minute before he falls he gets yeah. he gets to do the um uh this piggy went to market thing with tweety which is yeah. great i should mention all of the looney tunes characters are voiced by mel blank this is one of the last things he worked on before he died so yeah. it's the OG. It's the OG, the original, and uh, yeah, it's um, all of these tunes are kind of taken out there, taken out on Eddie. <laughs> he is he's in the bad part of town. He's in the bad days. He's not. He's on the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah, and so when he falls, like even though like it's funny that like Mickey, who's such a nice character, like he's in on the joke with Bugs Bunny that they're going to give him this, you know. Oh, you got a spare? You know, meaning yeah. parachute? Uh, no, it's a spare tire, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, piggies. Hi, Tweety. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. No. This little piggy had roast beef. And this little piggy had... Uh-oh, we're out of piggies. What's up, Doc? Jumping without a parachute? Kinda dangerous, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you could get killed, huh? You guys got a spare? Uh, Bugs does. Yeah? Yeah, but I don't think you want it. I do, I do. Give it to me. Gee, uh, uh, better let him have it, Bugs. Okay, Doc. Whatever you say, here's the spare. Thank you. <laughs> ah, no! Ah! Aw, oh, poor fella. <laughs> yeah, ain't I a stinker? He, but doesn't, doesn't Mickey have, like, a throwaway line? Oh, why'd you do that? Like, you know, like, uh, I have, uh, maybe I'm making...
making that up. No, he, he doesn't. I forget exactly what he says. He doesn't say that, but like he still is like, huh, you know, happy old self. Um, yeah. But he does like he never goes. He never like chastises Bugs. I think Bugs does say his classic line of like, you know, ain't I a stinker? But I forget what Mickey says. But you know, he's not he's not um, giving Bugs any uh, you know lip for for having done it. Uh, and so Eddie falls. He's caught by Lena Hyena. He does again a Looney Tunes trick by taking the the paint on the line on the road and moving it so it curves into a wall. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the confrontation with you know he's all, he thinks he's about to be shot by Jessica. She's actually shooting at Judge Doom who's behind him. And so now we know they're you know she's good, he's bad, and yeah. he, he even like runs away and he's like you know never stop me and like it's very like. The way he even runs away, like there's something cartoonish about it. It's it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always knew I'd get it in Toontown. Behind you! Drop it, lady! I just saved your life and you still don't trust me? I don't trust anybody or anything. Not even your own eyes? That's the gun that killed R.K. Maroon. And Doom pulled the trigger. Doom? I followed him to the studio, but I was too late to stop him. That's right! You'll never stop me! You're dead! You're not dead! The, you know, on our last, last time I spoke with you, we were talking about, I'm forgetting the name of the show. Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels, uh, and Christopher Lloyd playing the, man, my brain is... He's, a, he's the detective in that, yeah. He's the detective in that, yeah. It's, it just shows, I mean, the range of the character, of that actor, he's, you know, there's like a handful of actors who, like, um, I feel like can do anything. I would put Michael Keaton in that category, Robin Williams. Christopher Lloyd is right there. Like the guy, comedy, drama, physical, um, menacing, whatever you need him to do, he can do it. And yeah, it, him running away is definitely like a hint to who the character really is. Yeah, no, it's, again, once you know the secret of, of who Judge Doom is, like, and you go back and watch the movie the second time, um, there are so many little subtle things that he's doing that are, you know, not just offbeat, but, like, specifically because he's a tune in disguise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so both both uh, Roger and Benny and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jessica and Eddie are stopped at the border outside of Toontown. There's a... Uh, I think was it they throw the dip in front of the car or something? Oh, they're in Benny, right? Yeah. Right, they're in Benny the cab. So the dip on the ground burns his tires, and he skids out, and they're captured by the weasels. Roger comes in behind them. You know, uh, Benny and him hop into a car, and they're on their way to the Acme factory. Everyone's converging at the Acme factory for this final showdown. Yes, I love this climax. I think there's so much fun going on in this thing on, on all levels. It's a, I mean, it's, um, you know, the lie, it's the expectations for this film to close out the third act, you know, are so high based on that first act that we were talking a long time about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't, like, through, yeah, the tab, I remember being so, like, oh man, I hope the cab is okay. He's really messed up those tires. And, being so conflicted about like the the weasels like they were menacing but i liked them like and then they all start to buy it you know mm-hmm. like and then like you know the classic cartoon game of like when a cartoon dies what happens cartoon ghost 
Cartoon Goose, Cartoon Angel plays the harp. For most of them, except the main one, Eddie uh, kicks him in the balls uh, into the dip. I'm bouncing off the walls. When I that gun and have some fun, I kick you in the nose. Nose? That don't rhyme with walls. No, but this does. Into the dip. Yeah, yeah, he he gets a brutal a brutal end. But um, yeah, and then like you know, then it turns into, and then we get the confrontation between. Eddie and Judge Doom, and right, and he lays out the whole plot at this point. He gives the villain speech that you know he he is the sole stockholder for Cloverleaf. He bought the red car so he could dismantle it because his plan is to eliminate public transportation in Los Angeles, destroy Toontown, and build a freeway. I suppose you think no one's going to notice Toontown's disappeared. Who's got time to wonder what happened to some ridiculous talking mice when you're driving by at 75 miles an hour? What are you talking about? There's no road past Toontown. Not yet. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils. A construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? What the hell's a freeway? Eight lanes of shimmering cement running from here to Pasadena. Smooth, safe, fast. Traffic jams will be a thing of the past. So that's why you kill that new maroon? For this freeway? I don't get it. Of course not. You lack vision. But I see a place where people get on and off the freeway. On and off, off and on, all day, all night. Soon. Where Toontown once stood will be a string of gas stations, inexpensive motels, restaurants that serve rapidly prepared food, tire salons, automobile dealerships, and wonderful, wonderful billboards reaching as far as the eye can see. My God, it'll be beautiful. And that great speech he gives about how wonderful this freeway will be with, you know, shimmering billboards and restaurants that prepare rapidly prepared food. And, you know, it's like even in the 80s, like I grew up in Southern California. So I was like, man, driving on the freeways in L.A. sucks. Like, you know, it's like that's already a standing joke. So this got such a good reaction in the theater where I saw it. I just remember people going like, really? That's, you know, you're in love with the freeway, huh? Wait till you actually see it. Yeah, this is a great documentary about, I saw on PBS about the freeways and the neighborhoods they destroyed, and people kind of giving obituaries to those neighborhoods, and proper, like, like so many, like, you know, those neighborhoods were where a lot of people of color and black people were living, and like, jazz clubs, famous jazz clubs, and musicians, and restaurants, they're gone, because we got freeways. And Toontown kind of represents like that magic that we lost, um, and yeah, we we're going to lose it because of this self-hating tune. 
whose form we never see. We never see Judge Doom go full tune. And it's the one thing about this film that I, 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 I'm on the edge of. Like, you appreciate the restraint, but you want to see it. I want to see. It's like, uh, it's almost like the thing, you know, like right. what is the true form of the thing, you know, like what is, yeah, this is a thing in a rubber suit. And I'm not like, I spent so much time as a child just like pondering over Judge Doom's backstory. What turned him? Like, he was a tune, so he was, you know, is this a tune that people knew? And like, what happened? Was he like Roger Rabbit? Was he a funny cartoon? Or like Betty Boop, even like a tune that was kind of put out to pasture that became bitter and hateful, but instead of to humans, to his own kind. Like, well, believe it or not, there were some, I don't think they're considered canon, but I think at some point Disney did put out some comics and it's in there. And you can see he was like Baron Von something was his original name. And you can see the design. It's like, you know, I think the idea is that he, he does have a shape, but he can also shape shift. So like, is it, you know, it's a little, they can still kind of get away with like, what well, you never really know. Um, and I think that was, it's something like that. He was put out to pasture and then, you know, went crazy. Um, so yeah, non-canonical, but it is out there if you can find it. I'll probably post it on Instagram, a screenshot of this stuff. Um, yeah, but I love the, uh, the, the, you know, so we first get the, con- before the reveal, there's the fight between Eddie and Doom and they're using all of the like cartoon things we saw earlier in the warehouse, the, um, you know, the hole, the magnet, the singing sword that sounds like Sinatra. And he gets, he accidentally gets himself glued to a steamroller and goes under it. And this is some great body horror of him like screaming and then he's flat and then getting up. Uh, I love it because it's like that stop motion animation they use when he like pops out of the ground. Like, like they're so like, it's such a love letter to animation that they're going to use a different form of animation to tell this part of the story. Oh, at the end when he's melting. Yeah, he literally screams, I'm melting, what a world, yeah. What a world, what a world. Yeah, the, the inflation, the, when he inflates himself, and then the eyes pop out. That's the kicker, right? Not just that he inflates himself, the eyeballs pop out of his head. And you're like, what is this? 
the sound they make. And to me, again, it, it got it like everything is considered. So it's like the physics of like, you know, he was wearing glass eyes in the rubber suit and something was peering behind. Those, it gets really fucking creepy when you think about what Judge Doom really is. That's why he's wearing goggles all the time, too, to help conceal that. Right. And, and there's a moment when like I like he gets tripped or falls early in the film and he gets up and he's holding his eyes in. And it's just like why and you think he's just hurt before you realize like, oh, he was holding the fake eyes in to keep the disguise. Um, right. And then yeah, then there are these great great scenes, great stunt work, wire work, physicality. With Judge Doom, like, he turns into Inspector Gadget. He springs under the bottom of his feet, flies in the air, and he starts, like, he, so like a scythe or a buzzsaw. It's both or something. It's like it starts, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a buzzsaw. And then Eddie pulls out the, the mallet with the boxing glove inside of it, and he uses that to, from a distance, uh, activate the drain on the dip machine, which uh, just sprays him, uh, fills the room with dip. He melts. Uh, the animation on like his eyes are so crazy too because they just draw that over Christopher Lloyd's face, but like the that and they tune his voice up high. Uh, yeah. It's you know it's so great, uh, and he's gone. Yeah. He's gone. Yeah. The, also the the bald head with the orange puff of hair at the top. Yeah, that's great. Kind of cone head like very like uh, or, um, sloth from Goonies. Yeah, Sloth from Goonies, Burt from Sesame Street. Yeah, it's he's, it's it's very disturbing. And yeah, he's gone and one of the greatest cinematic villains put on screen, portrayed by Christopher uh, Lloyd, has made an impact and made an exit. Right. Uh, so all the tunes, the, the machine, which is still on, although now it's thankfully out of dip and can't hurt Toontown, busts through the wall, creates a hole. All the tunes come pouring out to see what's going on. And the, the question of Marvin Acme's will is finally answered because we haven't talked about it, but Roger found a piece of paper. He wrote a love letter on it, and it's been kind of hanging around in Eddie's pocket the whole movie. We find out it was the will. It was blank because he used the disappearing, reappearing ink on it, and now it reappears. The will is back, and Roger reads it. It confirms that uh, Toontown belongs to the Toons, and everybody goes home happy. Yep. Yeah, 
we got more um, somewhere in my brain. Uh, my brain's canon, like, the sequel is, instead of, uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, Eddie Valiant and Roger Rabbit decides to go into PI work and, like, they partner up, you know? And, yeah. Uh, well, there, that almost exists. So there's So here's some of the Roger Rabbit stuff outside of the movie. There were three other shorts made. Uh, the first one comes from something called Tummy Trouble, and then there was a few, one or two more. There was, of course, the very baffling NES game. And then there was this Disney Afternoon cartoon show called Bonkers, which yeah. Bonkers, Bonkers takes place in the world of Roger Rabbit, but in modern day. So there are, so there's Toon, yeah, there's like a Toons in Toontown, and this out of work cartoon named Bonkers gets a job as a cop. And he's partnered with a human. The whole thing, of course, is actually animated. But in the fiction of the show, he's a cartoon. His partner is a real human. And they go around solving toon crimes. So um, I don't have much of a memory of the show, but it is it is like one of the few things that continues that. And, of course, there's Toontown at Disneyland. So you can sort of go walk around in it and ride Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. I did, uh, I did see the Toontown at Disneyland. I remember Bonkers. I think Bonkers, so I like... I think I may have aged out when Bonkers hit the air. Me too. Yeah. Uh, I was still, like, you know, from DuckTales, Tailspin, uh, Rescue Rangers, and then, like, Darkwing Duck, I started to age out. And so when Bonkers came along, I never watched. And I never knew it was in the Roger Rabbit world. And that, I don't think that was even made clear. If it was, I would have watched the show. Yeah, I remember the theme song, not well, but I know the first line of the song is, Once Upon a Time in Toontown, there was a cat that had it all. Um, Man, I yeah. never put two, two together. Huh. If, yeah, if only it was better, you could go back and watch it. I think it's on Disney+, yeah. Plus, but I don't remember if it was that great. I got some deleted scenes and some bonker, uh, bonker episodes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you that deleted scene when we're, when we, uh, go off air. It's, it's really fun. Um, so here we are. We're at the end. Um, so I'll talk, or Tarek, I'll ask you, uh, what we ask everybody, which is, you know, why do you think this movie has endured and had the legacy it's had? I mean, we, I think we talked a bit about it, but it's so layered and so every frame is, uh, filled with love and detail. And the film is layered with so many topics that we're still grappling with today. Um, while taking a beloved, like, American, like, taking some beloved American inventions of noir, of, of these animated characters uh, from Disney and Warner Brothers, and telling this kind of and delivering on this really joyful but intense story of kind of who we are as a country. Um, We're messed up, we're divided, but there's an abundance of playfulness and joy still, and magic in us. We just got to not fuck it up. I think that's a great way to sum it up. I, I just, you know... This movie blew me away in 1988. It blows me away 35 years later. Um, it's so layered and yet so accessible. You don't have to get any of the subtext of this movie to enjoy it, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, every frame of it, like you said, is is a bit of like acting wizardry and technical wizardry. Uh, and so you just can't take your eyes off the thing. And it's good. The best uh, thing I heard about it was like, 
I think Roger Ebert, uh, he, he went to see it and he ran into a bunch of his critic friends who had also seen it. And he asked, oh, where are you guys off to? He said, oh, we're going to go see it again. And like that tells you everything. Like even these, you know, cynical film critics were like, I'm a kid again. I can't wait to go see what I just saw because it's magic from top to bottom. So it really is. It really is. Well, Tarek, thank you again for coming by on this. This was this was a treat to talk about. Uh, it's always good hanging out with you. Um, can you tell our audience where they can find your stuff? You can find me on the socials. I am uh, not on Thread as of yet, uh, but I am on TikTok, still on the hell site that is Twitter for right now, and on Instagram. You can find me at Tarek R. Davis. And uh, on our side, yes, we are also still on Twitter until we can find an appropriate lifeboat. Uh, so we're at Nostalgia Pod on Twitter. We're also on Instagram. I just look for Nostalgia Arcanum there. And that's where I post bonus reels and content every week. So go to that. Uh, if you have thoughts on our recent episodes, which of course include this one, uh, My Cousin Vinny, Chrono Trigger, and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, let us know. Coming up next, uh, we're doing one on Doom, the, the original 1993 Doom video game, which will be fun with our buddy Rich Baker. Uh, I'm going to do one on Yu-Gi-Oh, which I know nothing about, but our guests are really excited to talk about that, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and in the not-too-distant future, we've got Muppet Treasure Island, so uh, that'll be another fun one to, to spend some time with the Muppets. So, uh, good stuff. So, um, man, thanks again, Tarek. This is a real pl- uh, just an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This has been my pleasure. I love talking with you about phone. Yeah. All right. Until next time, uh, that is one more entry in the Nostalgia Arcanum, and of course, I will give the final sign-off to Porky Face. Hey, move along. There's nothing else to see. That's all, folks. Hmm. I like the sound of that. That's all, folks. <laughs> did your kids like the film? Did they? Yeah, yeah, they did. Jack, Jack was a bit funny. He. Um... How old was Jack? Jack was about. He was just two, three. He was just on the verge of being three, or maybe he was just three. And he saw it, and um, like afterwards, he, he was really funny with me. You know, it took me about two weeks to work out what it was, and, and what it was was the fact that here's my old man. He's got mates like Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny, and he don't bring them home. <laughs> he really had the needle with me. You know what I mean? Oh, ah, you know, what sort of old man are you? You got friends like this, and all I meet is your boring lot. <laughs> you know, I understand that.